My name is Bernard Sweeney. Um, I am what they call an Irish traveller. Uh, before that, you used to call us tinkers, itinerants, hedge people, woods people, bogs people, wanderers. Uh, but pretty much we're the Irish clans, the Irish Gaelic clans. We're uh, classed as an ethnic minority. We've been stripped of our identity. We've been institutionalized, segregated, uh, abused to no, no ends, so much so that we have 11% of the deaths of our community are by suicide, low education, high levels of unemployment. These are for people who are intelligent and are well capable of work. But unfortunately, uh, because of colonization, we're now living in a modern day Ireland where the, what we call the Irish settled people see travelers as others as something else and have categorized us as Roma and gypsies when we're trying to tell these nice people that we are the Irish Gales. We're the last of an ancient culture that was not colonized in the 1600s. And that's some introduction. <laughs> but that's who we are. That's who I am. I'm an Irish traveler, my friend. And I go over to Dylan. We can talk about more of this stuff later on. Uh, Dylan Foley, I'm an archaeologist, or I was, um, I suppose you could say, archaeologist turned, well, and I'm probably, I'm more into the artist, artistic side of things now, but I was a field archaeologist for <clears throat> 15, 20 years, and I work with Bernard here, and uh, both of us from Sligo, I work with Bernard a lot on, um, obviously, the, dealing with um, how we got here when it comes to things like what he's talked about, the problems in the traveller community and in Ireland in general, <clears throat> or with the settled community even, because Ireland was a colonised country and all that kind of stuff. And so obviously we, we take a bigger, we try to put it in a bigger framework. So a lot of my work involves dealing with the bigger picture going right back into the Middle Ages, because I think we have to go that far to understand what's going on now. And so, yeah, that's what I work with in this regard. That's what I would mostly work with. Um, I've kind of fell by steps into it as, you know, living in, I suppose, what us living in the West of Ireland and that it's kind of natural, <laughs> you know, um, as they say. I'm Jimmy and uh, Jimmy Billings, and I run a project called Tishkin Natalun, which is wisdom of the land. And uh, that refers to the wisdom that the land itself possesses, not the wisdom we hold of the land. Um, and roughly, in short, the project is about challenging coloniality. So coloniality is a broader, broader project that colonialism is part of and that still exists today in Ireland in many uh, spheres of life. And uh, <clears throat> so challenging coloniality and white supremacy in Ireland, uh, the Irish manifestations of it, while trying to connect to trying to connect and revitalize parts of Gaelic culture as a sort of an activist uh, project for resisting or re-existing in, in the face of those things. That leaves you, Reese. All right. Um, Don't hold I, uh, back, man. <laughs> My name is uh, Reese McFall. Um, I am a uh, Scots Gaelic learner, and I'm starting to learn the local dialect where I live now in uh, North Cork in Shlieve Luachra. Um, originally, I'm from occupied Nukwachamish territory, which is in uh, 
the in Washington State or Washington State in the United States. And uh, so I've been learning uh, Scots Gaelic for about five years now, and I've just started learning uh, Gaelga Muscarai. And um, I came to this kind of uh, cultural revitalization work uh, through involvement in environmental direct action work and sort of community organizing. And that prompted uh, kind of further uh, further research into the history of colonization and what decolonization means for settler populations in uh, Turtle Island or North America um, and sort of uncovering the process of colonization and assimilation and seeking to connect with living cultures that are uh, you know, in minority language groups and doing revitalization work. And so I fuse that with, with um, uh, what I can do with environmental work, um, which is, I guess my, my main interest is in the protection and cleaning of uh, water supplies. So looking at, you know, the, the ancestral responsibilities of making sure that future generations have uh, clean and drinkable water, uh, you know, and healthy land. But my focus is mainly on, on water. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, I have done years and years of research into as much history as I can about various uh, groups that my ancestors come from, uh, which uh, are um, in these like North Atlantic islands in Scotland and Ireland, uh, Denmark, Wales, parts of England, uh, as well as Slovakia. And so my main, my main interest is in, in the uh, Gaelic culture. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, brilliant. Jimmy, this is your whole, uh, your uh, podcast, so I'll let you direct it, my friend. Sure. Um, I, I came across your work on YouTube a while back, Bernard, and uh, I just found your perspective and analysis of colonialism and culture in Ireland very refreshing. And I found that, you know, the stuff that, say, myself and Reese talk about is very aligned with the stuff you're saying. And, um, yeah, these conversations are kind of, I feel they're really in their infancy in Ireland. And it's not like a very widespread sort of view, uh, the stuff I'm saying or the stuff you're saying. And it, like, it, it isn't widely understood or talked about that the modern Anglophone Irish culture is not a Gaelic culture, right? but it's a culture that's closer to English or Euro-American cultures itself being a product of colonialism. And there's a dominant idea in Ireland that what exists now culturally is um, some kind of like natural evolution of what came earlier rather than something that was violently carved out for us. And then of course, accepted and pushed by an elite class of people internally who taught them, the, who taught, who then taught it themselves as Irish uh, instead of, Gale from around the 17th to 18th centuries onwards. Um, and this cultural rupture, the destruction of Gaelic culture by Anglo culture, is I, I feel is probably at the foundation of the difference that has since emerged between travelers and settled people as two different ways of categorizing people in a colonial way. And my understanding is that settled people became more culturally English while travelers have held on to many, many Gaelic ways, um, nomadism being one of them, and have since been violently forced out of that by settled people who accepted the colonial way as the only way. 
Um, so maybe I'll ask you that that's, that's where I found alignment in, in what I was thinking with what you were saying on your YouTube channel. So maybe you could talk a bit about your, your understanding of this process and where it's left us today. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I think, yeah, there's, there's so many ways we could, we could try to do this. But what I'd say is that if we can, there's a guy called Robert Sapolsky. He's a human behaviorist and he studies the limbic system and the magdala and all these kind of stuff. I know fragments of these things because I already know enough within me as a cultural person. So I just need a snippet sometimes that can sort of change, uh, change how I see things. That goes for a lot of people. So I use his method for limbic system, what I would call the mentality. So that's where you store your emotions, your feelings, your memories, your dreams, all that kind of stuff. So that's the limbic system, and I call it the mentality. The frontal cortex, which is the other part of the brain, I call the human mind. So you got the limbic system, and you got the frontal cortex. You got the mentality, and you got the mind. What I would say is trying to step into the mind and outside of our mentality. In other words, stepping outside of the colonial language. Because once you do that, you can see the language in a different kind of structure. It has a beginning. The language itself was created about 1,500 years ago. It was a trade language. It was a systematic language. You see it in America, they got a business mentality. You see it in Australia, they got a prison mentality. And you see in Ireland, they got a English mentality. So for me, I already knew a lot of this stuff. I went through the segregation, the back of the classroom. I had cousins who were in travel-only schools. We went to the travel-only buses, travel-only institutions when they kidnapped our children and did what they did to Native Americans, beat the itinerant cultural ways out of us. This is all part of a process that started in 1963. And in there, the, the language, such as uh, the final solution, kind of off the back of Hitler. Um, they talked about how would they label us so the guards, the state police could identify us. Um, again, off the back of Adolf Hitler. But this is 1963. Hitler was before that. Now go back before that again, the beginning of the Irish independent state. They talked uh, and passed acts and laws of trespass and how to more or less raid these people, these nomadic people at the sides of the road. So we're talking about colonialism. It is huge in that sense, because it's neurological. The whole plantation of Ireland, and Dylan can talk for fun on this kind of stuff, but the whole colonization of Ireland wasn't just about processing the land, taking the land and setting up their institutions. It was deliberately about shifting the native mentality into an English mentality. So you'd see things like the penal law uh, that came a bit later, and that was about breaking down the culture, the language, the tradition, the self-belonging, and so on and so forth. So part of that plan, again, I'm going to Dylan's area, but he can talk about it in a moment. The, the idea was to break down the Irish clans in each, any which way they could break them down. And it was a process that it took centuries because it was a very difficult one to break down. You're talking about a people who were well able to fight, were warriors in their own right. Some of the best warriors in Europe actually came from Ireland. So the process was never easy for England. So it was a long carried out process. But that happened at the expense of, expense of our ancestors. So what they did was they separated the clans from the quieter people, you could say, the ones you could manage and deal with uh, more sufficiently. So they created towns and villages. 
and they start processing what we call Irish people into a colonial mentality, imprisoning them. Uh, most of these people were wiped out with plagues and virus when it came along because their immune systems would collapse. So they were very vulnerable to plagues and diseases. Where Irish travelers, we call them Irish travelers now today, but the Irish clans then would be semi-nomadic. Uh, the Irish culture was never really truly a nomadic culture on its own. It was actually part of a society. It was just one part of it. Because again, go back to Dylan, there were castles, lands, territories. So we could travel for a year and it could take a circuit just to do that. So it might look like we're nomadic people, but we're just carrying out our rounds. So the process, I guess, was to break down the clans, separate them from the rest of the Irish people. And that has never stopped right to this day. So in 1922, Ireland became this independent state, free from colonialism and so on and so forth. But they kept every act, law, policy, institution, system, everything that was colonial England that almost destroyed the island, not anti-English, not against the English or the settler or the Irish, or anyone else for that matter. Those things happened. We now can reflect upon them and talk about them. But in 1922, they kept all the institutions. So what would have been seen before as indoctrination was now becoming Irish standard education. So they kept pushing travellers back and back and back because they did not want to be in the same limelight as their Irish, but couldn't explain this minority group going around Ireland. So, of course, we got all these different labels that I mentioned about the institutions and the segregation. And right up to this day, Ireland is still in an English colonial mode. Not their fault because it's generations old. The people to blame are long dead. But nevertheless, it's still happening. Um, and this is another thing that Lynn can talk about. But we'll talk about how broad colonization is. A lot of the global colonization in one way or another is linked with Ireland. Like you go back far as Rome. They were in cahoots with the Germans centuries and centuries and centuries ago. The Germans were a dramatic tribe that invaded England, suppressed and created and institutionalized the English language. The English language is chopped up, made up from various other colonial powers. Hence why I keep calling it a systematic language. It's the way it thinks. It's very dualistic, in, out, up, down, over and back. That kind of mentality. So Ireland has that, they're operating in that, and they proclaim themselves to be the Irish. But there's nothing Irish about Ireland. There's nothing Irish about the systems. And they keep persecuting Irish travellers that brought us to a life expectancy of 65. 11% of the deaths in our community are by suicide, alcohol, low education, high levels of unemployment. And again, this is from a people who are smart or intelligent and came from the land of the saints and the scholars, the same people who taught the English how to read and write and put spaces between their words. But here we are, in an Ireland, surrounded with people who proclaim to be Irish, but yet they know nothing about Irish travellers. They, they give us the worst of abuse. Um, and this is not their fault. That's the sad thing about it. It's because of colonization and othering people that the whole mentality had changed. I'll just bounce back briefly back to... The, the main plan of colonization wasn't just the land. It was a neurological shift of mentality because they didn't give a shit what you wore, what you said, or where you go, as long as it was in the English language and they could manage it. Now, with the English language and the education system, they had different uh, levels to it. So you got the vocational education. In other words, fuck off, 
get arrested, get killed. Then you had the systematic one. Then you walk that up, you'll see the, the public schools got the public education and then the middle classes got the colleges and the institutions and the elites got the private schools. I mean, them tier systems are replicated in everywhere you see within a settled uh, dome. It's in their employment, it's in their church, it's in their business, it's everywhere. It's a tier system, uh, management, CEO, boss, um, priests, bishops, pope. It's it's constant that kind of um, uh, way of thinking. So yeah, that's where we're at in Ireland at the moment. We, I think we have serious issues. And forgive my rant. <laughs> well, that's the, we're here for the rant, so <laughs> it's all good. D Dylan, do you want to add anything to that? <clears throat> Uh, well, yeah, I would like probably help out in the sense that um, um, it's a very big uh, picture you're looking at. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, for the day, I, I would be interested in the sense that what um, we could say what uh, like when you would you with your interest in decolonization, I can understand with America uh, coming from America. And it's it's uh, like you were saying in America, it might be a little more, it mightn't be popular, but it's a little more obvious uh, that it's colonized, if you know what I mean. And like you say, in Ireland, it's much more disguised. And in fact, a lot of historians, in the 20, I would start with this in the sense that a lot of why would it be an issue that we're it's only in its infancy in Ireland, as you said, um, that even conversations like this would only be starting uh, from from our point of view, the fact would be that for a lot of the 20th century, it seems that uh, although it's it's not unheard of, scholarship did start out with the idea of colony and around the world, most people would accept Ireland was colonized. But Irish historians within the country have spent the, the last century denying it, <laughs> mostly um, claiming that, no, it's not a colony. Now, of course, like what Berners describing about mentalities and stuff is, is important. A lot of the history that we're talking about in the 20th century, of course, there's a confusion that I would try to, that I would add to this, just to, I would try to not add, but try to sort out a little bit. Um, obviously, a lot of that history is written by Irish people. There's Irish, there's diverse identities within Ireland. Let's put it that way. Uh, and in within Irish identities, if you know what I mean. So we can talk about like, there's the Gaelic world. Within that, there would be diversity because the provinces and various identities that were very ancient. But outside of that, then there's, say like, if, to this day, there's diverse identities within the country. So, of course, you're going to get a different answer depending on who you ask. Like, is Ireland was Ireland a colony? <clears throat> well, from the from writing from within the pale, for example, they'll continually deny it. <laughs> but they're writing from within the idea of the colony. They're writing from within the mentality of the colony, if you know what I mean. And so, obviously, for them, there is no. It's not. A, it's not a colony. This. This. They, they've taken on the colony in Ireland is very old because it goes dates back to the 12th century, the uh, the first uh, Norman invasions and the English colonies that are there. You've got the, the little Viking merchant towns and things like that, and the beginning of urbanism, to put it in a bigger picture, um, which would a process that happened across Europe and then eventually lands in Ireland. And but in Ireland, it's quite strongly resisted, and uh, it doesn't take hold uh, across most a lot of the country. But the uh, but the towns. Are there since Viking times, if you know what I mean, and they become the the, the beginnings of what we would term colonies. Um, but it's there so long the colony that um, 
even in the 16th century, the colonies of the Pale and the other towns, the, the European style towns, which are anglicized to some extent, are also Gaelicized a little bit, uh, quite a lot. Um, but, at this, but at the same time, they're, they're, they're not part of the Gaelic world, uh, if you know what I mean. But they have, from the outside, they have an Irish identity. And, and a lot of the stuff that me and Bernard have talked about recently, I, I think that it's important to separate their legitimate identities, but it's important to separate the English Irish, like, uh, for example, Irish scholars at the time in the 17th century would have said there's three, there's three, they would have separated the Ireland into at least three different um, groups. The, um, for example, in the 17th century, the, uh, the native Irish Gaelic uh, clans that were not intermixed as such, um, uh, that lived in the Gaelic zone beyond the towns and, and beyond the pale, uh, which was large parts of the country, most of the country, even at that time. Um, the, uh, the English Irish, they call them, which are the old English colony, which had an Irish identity at that stage of the pale and of the walled towns, the walled merchant towns. And then the new English of the day, the Protestant English ascendancy that become the dominant culture during the occupation of the next four centuries, if you know what I mean, until 1922. That's the one that most people assume. And when we talk about Irish, uh, the Irish history and the colony and all that, we talk a lot about England doing this and England doing that. And what gets lost in, the, in, in it is the fact that England was only really, you could look at it this way, is only back the colony in Dublin is there all the way through. And it's, although it shrinks down to a, quite a small size in the 1500s, say, when the conquest starts, really you could look at it that it's Dublin with the backing of England, trying to centralize control across the country, which it had been doing for centuries. And in a way it becomes a battle between two Irish identities, an English version of the culture and an Irish version. Now it depends which way you're looking, you might deny one or the other, but uh, it's from the outside, you were looking at two Irish identities, essentially an English urban one, an English uh, one that comes from an English culture, but is Irish as well that's urban, and then the rest of the country, which is still in the Gaelic world, which is a completely different culture. And of course, they're split down the middle because the urban Gaelic, the urban and English-Irish one is a merchant culture that's connected to European urban cultures of the time and feudalism and all the things we'd recognize from your average Robin Hood show or whatever. But outside that, we're into a different world altogether where there's no money as such, no monetary economy. Merchants are not important. They're the least important and it's a warrior society more or less um, in terms of the elite and it's organized into clans and it's rural and there's no towns and it's completely uh, a different world uh, elements of what we you know um, uh, you know uh, quite an alien world but one as well that we don't know that a lot of people would not have that much access to in the sense that we wouldn't know much about it because it's our history is written from the point of view of the colony even to this day more or less um, so yeah, anyway, I would say that it's important. I would say that it's, I would say that what, what Bernard's talking about when it comes to mentalities and that it's important because that, that the colony, the colony as I'm calling it there of Dublin and that is actually the source for what we would, what me and Bernard would work on. We would call it the source for when, what eventually becomes what we call settled people, <laughs> because that expands across the country during the conquest. And we all become that as the Gaelic world shrinks, uh, to just 
either island, either people speaking Irish on the side of a mountain or the islands or whatever, but also people living in the in any different forms of the of the Gaelic uh, of the traditions of the Gaelic world, and that includes people, as Bernard says, that we now call travellers and people who were still moving in the way that they had done in the Gaelic world. Um, so you think you're saying that um, this uh, the root of this English Irishness, if you, as you call it, is is rooted in the Norman invasion. Like that's where it it was incubated for the first time. Yeah. So you've got you've actually you could add you could add even another culture that was lost in Munster, for example. There was a Norman. The Normans had invaded had had taken large parts of of, of Munster, and there was a French Gaelic culture that developed there. Uh, they were they were French speaking. This is before English had become English in England, even if you know what I mean. So the Normans conquered England. Fine. The Normans came to Ireland. But the problem always in Ireland, as they pointed out, a problem was that the Normans didn't conquer Ireland fully. They only semi conquered it. And therefore, you ended up with two different you ended up with a complex patchwork of zones, if you know what I mean. And it's within them that you get a diversity of cultures because Ireland wasn't centrally one culture as such. Even in the Gaelic world, it was very much um, decentralized authority across the provinces and across numerous territories so power was uh, decentralized even in the gaelic in the gaelic way of doing it and the normans came in and tried to centralize but more or less failed and a lot of them ended up yeah joining into the thing the point being that a lot of large parts of munster and north north munster even i think where where reese is there the um interesting patchwork of gaelic culture and norman French culture, uh, so it's wrong even to say that it's just English. If you know what I mean, it's it's mm. this, it, it becomes fused with French and Gaelic poetry, and the Normans were the warrior elites intermarry with uh, Gaelic families, and we have families to this day, even traveller families that are connected to that, like Barrys, I think, and with various other uh, uh, names. The the um, but they essentially end up being more or less it's rural and it's not connected to the urban uh, culture we're talking about. So that's that later on it's it becomes a target for Dublin as much as the Gaelic culture is, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, the, the, but the culture within Dublin of that, that being the colony, that one that says that it's granted, that it's been granted by the Pope, the domination of, you know what I mean? The rule of Ireland and looks on itself as being uh, the natural, the one that should be in control of the country and the one that's the, the, they believed they were the proper Roman Catholics that they that the Pope had granted them it because the rest of them were pagans and all this kind of stuff. They essentially ran a different economy and a different con urban concept of merchants were important and therefore it's a, it's that clash at a, at a even at an economic level, mm. if you know what I mean between between within the pale and outside it. You'd have to kind of people would have to explain a little bit like it's not like a war between, for example. The pale boundary is not like the boundary between, say, one territory in Europe and another. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because they would both be feudal on both sides. So one might be the feudal lord of, uh, you know, of um, uh, Gascony or something, and another one might be Aquitaine. And if they go to war and one conquers his cities, but fundamentally, like what Bernard talked about earlier, fundamentally their mentality would not be that different. They would understand the world as being made of castles and lords and peasants and. You know what I mean? And there's uh, bankers and this is how we organize it. Now, it's all a game of thrones as to who wins. But in Ireland, the frontier is really a frontier between two different worlds because it's also a world, a different mentality of how you organize society in general. 
And so it's a real frontier, like what more like what we'd expect in, in the US, for example. Uh, not the US at that time, but in America when they first land in Virginia. And the frontier is a real frontier because behind it, on this side, you've got one type of civilization. On the next, outside the frontier, it's a completely different world. And Ireland was very similar to that. So the the sort of rural urban cultural clash that you're talking about is like it's almost like a battle between the Gaelic way of life and the sort of cultural preconditions of European of what became European capitalism. Yeah. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, it would be it would be. And to back we could probably back it up with a quote. There was a quote, do you remember that Bernard um, I was showing you? There's a quote from a lot of people would claim that people that the Irish, for example, didn't know why, you know, that the battle was because they were behind or they were very traditional and whatever, and that they weren't aware in some way of what they were fighting about. But actually, if you see it, there's a quote from a man in 1519, I think um, he's the, uh, he's a representative of the Pope for Henry VIII. He's an Italian, um, Chiari, uh, Chiaracati is his name. Anyway, there's a letter from this man called Chiaracati, who's the visit in Dublin, and he's the, um, oh, what do you call that, the legate or whatever for the Pope for Henry VIII. Now, the important thing is that he, 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 he records what the Irish have said to him because he's Italian and not English, he actually records what the Irish say at that time to him. And it's and what it is, is something along the lines of that they say that we are brutal. And he's talking about like, he's Italian, but he's talking about England or Europe in general. They say we are brutal because we make, uh, because we make private property of what is actually given by nature, um, if you know what I mean. And that they live in accordance with natural law because they, um, because, all things like that should be free, essentially. I'm kind of paraphrasing it. But there it is in a letter in 1519. And what he's what he's recorded there is essentially what you're saying. Um, there's no, I'm not trying to claim that, um, we're, we're certainly not claiming there's some kind of awareness of this is capitalism, this is socialism or anything like that. But it's, the Irish were quite, he, his recording very important because he's not actually Irish, but he's recording something that's very interesting, which is that the Irish are perfectly aware of the system change, of the system difference. And what it really means that the people within the pale boundary are uh, claim what the Irish regard as uh, natural uh, property collectively, uh, whether it be water, forests, or land, or whatever, uh, that they claim that as private property, and that this is a nat this is these systems are incompatible, essentially, and that actually they're quite aware, even in 1519, of what what this actual battle is about. <laughs> you know what I mean? So nomadism, nomadism obviously kind of presents a culture of clash with the idea of private property. It in, does, in, yeah, in, yeah. in the English system. Yeah, and I had, yeah. Done, had done since time immemorial. You could say that the other way around, they're actually aware. They're actually aware the other way around. Yeah, you're right, because they would be aware the other way around as well that actually this was an ancient battle that even the Romans had been involved in. Hmm. The, the English culture would have been modeling itself in the 16th century very much on Roman. Yeah. texts of conquering Gaul and stuff like that and they would have used a lot of that as the same excuse of like and and actually you might have seen I don't know if you, in, in one of our discussions on nomadism is there a lot of mobility in Irish culture yes there is yes there is but is it are they really nomads it, well that was exaggerated uh, like what Bernard's saying too it's exaggerated on purpose because the concept would be uh, 
as came from Roman times was that if people are fully nomadic, then they don't have a claim on the land, and therefore we're legit. Then we're we're therefore legitimate to take it. So you know, so it's yeah. So so what did semi nomadism look like in rural Gaelic Ireland? Uh, well, that's all to do with ca- cattle and horses. Um, mm. I guess it's because a lot of the pro- a lot of the uh, Ireland's uh, a lot of Ireland's. Um, appears to have been open land more or less like we have a complex kind of patchwork of forests and everything but at the same time a lot of the land is open so you could actually get on a horse and just go there's not the, all that co- that network of hedgerows and everything isn't there mm-hmm. um and so you've got large very large uh, uh, in some cases herds of cattle because the main economy is based on cattle the country is extremely rich in um in grass essentially as we know to this day there's more to this day, there's more people, uh, sorry, more cattle than people in the country. I think there's about 7 million cows, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of cows, ca- cattle, it's like a, a paradise in that sense. So there's um, a, a huge herds of cattle. Uh, the Eng- English witnesses in the 16th century regard uh, of them being gathered in for, um, I suppose you'd call it tax purposes or whatever, but gathering in large herds into where the, where the kings of Connacht are and stuff. You're talking about 20,000 head of cattle and things like this being gathered in one area. So there's enormous herds of cows that are moving and cowboys and, you know, <laughs> it's this kind of, um, uh, the the normal sequence of events within the territories, which are, say, like within provinces and that, and then at a small scale within the Gaelic territories is, is the movement of cows up to high pastures and down uh, that transhumans pattern and things like that, that all cattle herding societies um, uh, would be involved in. So it's a li- it's you wouldn't necessarily you could say it's nomadic. You could you could claim that, but it's not necessarily nomadic. It's more like Bernard described. It's different parts of the society, depending on their status, are moving greater, bigger or smaller distances. Generally, the, the, the poorer you are, the less horses you have or the no horses and you move within, you walk around your little area, your little tour. Um, on it and you might and you go about your business or whatever but if you have horses you can move further so you might move a bigger distance and obviously if you're part of the elite groups of like the chiefs and soldiers of a place like say Connacht as an example or Munster the circuits would be much bigger and they would be moving larger herds of cattle and large amounts of horses and uh, like we say it's not a culture that has we're not using wheeled vehicles it's not got that urban road or infrastructure networks so there is infrastructure, but it's completely different. It's more like in the Arab, in the old Muslim world or in the East, it's uh, strings of pack horses that wind their way across the country with, you know, and things like that. So, um, yeah, a different kind of a setup. But as Bernard would describe, there's many, and I think to this day, travelers would be, it's that nature. It's not, they're, they're within an area moving, if you know what I mean. There's traditional areas that they move in, even now. So around Donegal or around Connacht or around Munster or whatever and places that people were associated with. It's not just random nomadism uh, by any means. Yeah. Mm. Reese, did you have a question around that? Did you? You're you're muted. Sorry, um, people's visuals have disappeared. But uh, yeah, the many I mean many things, many threads, uh, parallels uh, are, are just firing off in my mind as I'm hearing these things. Um, uh, I, I, there was something that you said earlier, uh, Dylan, around um, the kind of fundamental difference between kind of like I, I would call it like the, the, the Gaelic mindset and 
um, rela relationship with language and land. So even coming down to like a, a level of, of um, frame of mind within language, um, things like possession and, and privatization of, of land and objects, just to, it, it, it doesn't exist in the language. Um, when you say like, or like the, the book is at me. It's not my book. The land is at you. The house is at you. Um, other things like emotions and feelings are, are something that's on you or, you know, your occupation is something that is in you. Um, but there's nothing in there about, um, you know, your identity being solely your occupation or the land or a relational object being something that you own. There are maybe references to like relationships of belonging, but it, ownership just isn't in there. And this came to a head and, and there's writings about this in the Scottish Gaelic perspective um, that leading up to, you know, the, the War of the Three Kingdoms and uh, the Clarences, where, you know, the linguistic like mindset was just fundamentally incompatible. Um, and this this divide between urban and, and rural and semi-nomadic and more settled it it's it's fascinating to, to to hear the kind of echoes and rhymes that exist within irish history because this definitely plays out in the scottish context um with the the highland lowland divide which speaking of the romans was a psychological and physical divide that was created by the romans who couldn't fully conquer the land but they sort of drove a, a barbed spear into it and then pulled it out and left this physical border on these sort of centuries along the highland lowland fault line. Um, and later on, what this kind of turned into is around the, the 11 and 1200s, uh, Flemish merchants and uh, Anglo-Norman lords basically created the borough system. And most of Scotland at that point would have been speaking Gaelic. Um, but uh, English became the trade language within those places. So if you wanted to, you know, and, and as the Anglo-Norman lords were gaining power, suddenly people were forced into paying financial rent, which was in direct conflict with the Brehan kind of, what's called the Brehan system, uh, which was more um, based on, on cattle and what you could produce on the land or, or gather in that way. Um, but it became more financially beneficial to speak the language. And it's, it seems to me that, that colonizers use the same playbook. Um, when the Roman, you know, as we're, you know, English lords were reading these accounts of Rome colonizing Gaul and the Germanic tribes. And it's even that divide between Celtic and Germanic is a psychological kind of construct that anyone west of the Rhine is Celtic and anyone east of the Rhine is Germanic. Um, when those peoples, you know, they're not the same culture, they have very similar parallel uh, kinship structures and, and you know, decentralized um, networks. But, you know, even to this day, we talk about Germanic languages and Celtic languages. Um, but yeah, the, the, the idea of ownership and possession is just sort of woven into the language, into the English language itself. Um, and it's, it's just fascinating to see how it, how it starts with something like language and then it kind of ripples out into these other dynamics uh, with people's relationships to land and relationships to other people's bodies as well. 
interesting. I, I would I would just gonna say one one thing. There's actually there's actually examples of like I think it's a guy called Smith or Thomas Smith. He could even be one. He may even have landed in Virginia later. I'm not quite sure, but I know there's early colony or early attempts at colonies that kind of failed along the east coast of Antrim. They were trying to split Scotland from the rest of Ireland to stop uh, soldiers moving over and back and and clans in general, uh, supplies and stuff. But particularly, uh, obviously, boatloads of um, soldiers and that. But um, so they tried to plant colonies along that edge. But actually, one of them that I think it's Smith. I think it's very interesting because he actually is basically walking around reading a Roman manual, <laughs> and he actually says that he's trying to do what the Romans were doing. It's a colonia in the Roman sense, if you mean. He actually is laying it out, uh, even down to the like the forts and everything, um, consciously that it's going to be. I'm going to be like a Roman general, and I'm going to do it the way they did it. You know. And so you can actually get examples where they're writing at the time, they're actually confirming it, if you know what I mean. They're saying, yeah, this is a colony, this is how it's going to work, and this is what I, I read about it in Caesar, and, you know, that kind of thing. So it's very conscious. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, that, that, that's just absolutely fascinating to hear that there's actually a written record of this, because the, langu- the dialect of Gaelic that I speak is um, Dalriada, which is from the Cowell Peninsula in Mid-Argyle, uh, which would have been a part of Kintyre, um, north of the Isle of Aden, kind of at the mouth of the Clyde. Um, and it would have been the seat of the, uh, the so-called Dalriada chiefs. And on the Cowell Peninsula in the Kehra Kaulach, there's actually a Roman kind of sentry, like a fort that sort of watches over the mouth of the Clyde. And that would have been this kind of um, whirlpool of a, of a region of cultural and ethnic diversity where you know you would have the Strathclyde uh, Brythonic speaking uh, uh, peoples which were like further along the banks of the Clyde there also would have been Norse um, Gaul Gales you know mixed Norse and Gale and then there would have been Gales kind of further downriver and even on a clear day when you're on the beach at Kilbrija or by Austal you look out at the Isle of Aden and you can see Kanchir which is you know the Kintyre Peninsula and you can see uh, Rathlin Island and Antrim um, on a clear day. It's only about 20 miles um, as the crow flies. And, you know, it, it's just even within like the archaeological record in Glaun Darul, for example, there is a, 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 a roundhouse um, that in the center of it, um, they were able to find this, this huge boulder that had the kind of hearth fire around it. And underneath was was a, a was human remains, but there's also kind of a armful sized boulder of um, copper which came from Ireland, and the the kind of narrative uh, that the British Academy kind of tends to to promote is that Gaelic languages came to Scotland after Christianization, but we have pre-Christian place names and stories within the landscape, and there's always been back and forth between those communities. Um, materially, kinship-wise, and linguistically, um, you know, and and and, I mean, we're, we're we're island and coastal people, and our and our existences are from, from the shore up to the hilltop, you know, and the the coastal, uh, you know, the, we were seafaring peoples, so there was lots and lots of back and forth and visiting and that sort of thing, um, and 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 if you go into like the the history of plantation, the the before Ireland was uh, invaded, um, the Crown basically set up a, a testing ground project on Kintyre Peninsula, which then became Campbelltown. 
and this was to specifically disrupt the autonomous decentralized power of the Lordship of the Isles, which was the O'Donnell or the, the clown MacDonnell uh, sort of dynasty. And they basically grant, uh, displaced local gales and then uh, replaced them with uh, Protestant and kind of capitalist minded settlers to, you know, then then kind of tell on like like basically outlaw language and practice cultural practices and then give them incentives to tell the authorities when gales were meeting or, or were, you know, violating these things. But a very deliberate attempt was made, um, and this became finalized after the Battle of Culloden in 16, or 1745, 46, um, to outlaw the Beerling, which was the sort of Gale's answer to the Viking longship. Um, and this would have, you know, there's the Beerling, there's the, the Hukuweren, there's the Kurach, you know, we have a maritime history and and a, a deep you know, oral understanding of, of back and forths. There's many Irish sagas that take place scattered in different parts of Argyll and the Highlands and Islands of Scotland and parts of the, the Scottish Gaelic stories that take place in, in Ireland. You know, and, and the Scottish travelers are all, you know, there's tons and tons of archeological sites and ongoing visited sites like the, uh, the, the Tinker's Heart, which is also on the Cowell Peninsula. You know, that's a major um, gathering site for marriages and uh, funerals and, and other kind of gatherings, that sort of thing. But yeah, it, the plantations exist as a wedge between the gales. Um, and, and I think, it, I mean, it's still, it's still there. The wedge is still there. Um, um, <clears throat> cool, we might jump back into the present and uh, get Bernard to come back in. Um, uh, so my feeling is that um, travelers likely have a good understanding of settled society, being forced to live in it and being continually oppressed by it. Um, but I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of settled people really know little to nothing about of genuine substance uh, about traveler culture or traveler people. Um, so I kind of have I have two questions for you around this. So first one is where where do you think could be the most potentially fruitful spaces for traveler and settled solidarities? And the second one is what do you think might be an important part of Gaelic culture or tradition that travelers have held on to that settled people could do with knowing about or remembering? Yeah, good questions. Um, just let me do a really quick recap, right? Because sometimes this conversation can be easily perceived as uh, three, and a, three and a half wise men uh, talking about history, uh, reflecting on this other theater. In our culture, we don't see history in the same way settled people see it. Settled people seem to see history in a, a line that's gone behind them and it's dated and it's timed and there's places and there's events. But our history doesn't start from there. Our history starts with in the present, who we are as a people. And we came from a great people and we came from warriors. I grew up, my father was our chieftain. This is in this lifetime. My granduncle was our king. We kings, queens, warriors and everything else in between. That's a lived, living culture that's happening in Ireland today. 
So when we look back on what's been said so far, I can see little bits and pieces, such as the not to blame the English entirely. We don't blame anyone entirely. We don't even blame the settled people for what they're doing to us. And what they're doing to us psychologically killing us. But we know it's not their fault. They're as much as victims as we are the victims. When we go back a bit further and we think about the Normans, the Normans did come here. They did invade. And I think we got some Norman blood in there ourselves. And I think we kicked the shit of them in Sligo a long time ago. And then we made friends with them. And then they changed from Normans to normal. So we're okay with that. <laughs> but anyhow, when we got over that, the Normans integrated. There was a difference between what the Normans were doing and what the English were trying to do. The Normans picked up the Irish language. They picked up some of the Irish Gaelic ways. Um, they ended up with 50% of the land in Ireland, nevertheless. But the English didn't necessarily come with that intent. They came to eradicate, to destroy, to carry out genocides or anything else they had to do was to get rid of this Irish mentality. And why I think it's all important is because it isn't just about the language. It isn't about the, the English colonial language, and it isn't just about the Irish language. You can't jump from the colonial language into the Irish language and send somehow or another you've decolonized yourself or you've moved away from it. We give up the Irish language about four or five hundred years ago for them reasons. The English picked up the, the Irish language. The Normans had the Irish language. And they were using that within a Gaelic society to make it easier to kill people like ourselves because the English would have set up bounties to kill the clan members, to rob them, steal, take what you can, you can keep it. And they were turning Irish people on Irish people. So it wasn't just then, but we use what they call the travel language, can't. Um, people say it's a survival language. And we say, well, damn right it was a survival language. It kept us alive. Um, so bring us right up to this present time. Our history is with us. Like, we, like I said, we keep it in that kind of understanding. Uh, we do, we're not literally um, literate people. We don't, we're cut off from our knowledge-based systems. Uh, we've been either institutionalized or denied an education. So our culture and our education stayed within that realm. So the traditions you might ring are read about in ancient history, about fair play, we call it. Even today, travellers call out travellers on fair play fights. They give each other six weeks, six months, 12 months to get fit. They don't do this because they want that guy to win. They want to do that so when they win, they know, they know and you know that they won when you were at your best. So when you go throughout history, you'll see a lot of that. A lot of other traditions, I guess, is a family orientated around how we think. Uh, it's changed a lot, and we can see this. But it seems in the settled mentality, it's a supremacy and success is one of the same. It's geared towards about the individual, uh, about going out and conquering the world. They literally tell the children. But basically, go out there and take the world by the hands and be the best you can and be great CEO, manager, whatever it might be. That is that mentality by default. So when we go back to the, the Gaelic culture. Well, Gaelic culture is a bit like Christianity in many ways. It's actually, it's more like Muslim uh, faith than it is Christianity. But I'll use Christianity for the purposes that uh, there's 33,000 different groups within Christianity. 
I won't name them all, but you get it. Protestants, Catholics, Presbyterians, and so on and so forth. So they got ideologies within a framework called Christianity. So when you spread Celtic culture and mentality, that's how vast and wide it was. Different groups, different fractions, uh, different customs, different traditions, but they were known as a Celtic culture. So when we bring it back to Irish travellers, that is not just one culture. It is not just one people. As Dylan said, we've got uh, French Gales, we've got the Old English, we've got the Normans. But what we've got is the last of that old world before the our world came crashing down, you could say, or at least the divide came down between us. So you had people that was pre-1600s and so on support in that culture. And this new Lisbethan neurological, psychological culture was uh, had separated us. So yeah, you got a mixed bag of travelers. Where would travelers and settlers meet halfway is common ground? Um, both of them are just colonial labels. You know, if we keep persisting that settled and travelers, well, we'll adopt any label under the rising sun other than uh, settled, because we know settled isn't Irish. Even if we didn't know a word of Irish, we knew enough to keep our, um, our travel language, Gaelic language, alive, what we call it Gaelic language. It kept us alive to keep us connected. It's a bit like um, we don't know who we are unless we know there's somebody else. We can only know our traveler label if there's somebody who isn't traveler. So when we look at the settle label, settle ideology or mentality, again, it's really down to being a human being and stepping outside these labels, identities. Very easy said than done because this is reality. So I would say we're chatting here, we're talking, and we're using the English language. And they're words that, um, oh, some of the, basically, the, yeah, we're using these words belonging to this language. So this isn't really our uh, reality. We didn't create this reality. Dublin has its own reality. It was created out of its own colonial mentality. So we have this huge clash between settled people and Irish travellers. Is what we have is the settled people thinking the Irish travellers are something else. And that somehow or another, that they can go on continuing to be this Irish default and learn the Irish language. But it won't matter what language you learn if your mentality and your history is already missing. It's, a, it's like picking up another language. Unless you're bilingual and that's different. That's, um, yeah. that's more in it. But um, the other question is, yeah, where does travelers and settle it? Where do we find a middle ground, common ground? Um, the decolonization part can't happen unless the settled people, we call them, whether they got Irish names and they came from the same Gaelic world we came from. As I mentioned, nobody's getting it like Irish travellers. The Irish speakers get excluded. They get treated like shit sometimes. The, um, the Irish cultures and traits get pushed back into the arts as nothing, um, non-existent if they can help it. But Irish travellers are literally being slaughtered, systematically, psychologically, genocidally slaughtered, and everybody around us can see us. They don't know who we are. They don't know where we came from. But they think that they can revert to an Irish identity, even if it means pick up the Irish language, which is a beautiful language, that in somehow or another that will reclaim some kind of Celtic survival or revival. I mentioned survival because we are literally the last of that Celtic culture surviving. Nobody in the settled society gets persecuted for being settled. There are no laws against 
being settled. There is no partel systems or acts or policies because you are settled. But there's an abundance of them because we are travellers. This label that was put on us. Again, travellers, tinkers, itinerants, it goes right the whole way back into the Irish plans. So the middle ground for me would be to say, look, it, no more blame, no more shame. Shit happened. The people who were wrong and did this are dead so long. And we keep burdening ourselves with um, traumas. Because I do believe that the Irish settled uh, society, the uh, population, are the people living in denial of their identity because they're practicing colonial systems and institutions. And they think it's normal. And they think we're not normal. So we got that huge situation about internalized uh, trauma. We know what happened during the famine. We know all the people that were slaughtered, driven into the sea. Parents were killed. Children were taken advantage by the Saxons, I guess, the, the, the state. And they took advantage of that. So the relationship can only continue, should continue, should build. Once we accept, we can't take responsibility of the things that once happened. We can't live in the past. We can't live in the future. But we can't live without our past in the present because we're getting slaughtered without it. So settle people, take a step outside the colonial mentality. No shame, no regrets, no blame. Those things happened. Uh, it happened long before we were born. So I would say our middle ground is through the arts, it's through documentaries, through films, because that's our greatest skill. That'll be our greatest way of pushing this back, because we do not, and some of us do not want, the English colonial settled literacy skills, because these people who have persecuted us, like day in, day out, all our lives, generation after generation, be more like us, abide by the laws, abide by the systems, uh, be normal, fit in like with everyone else. And you know, you're getting to the point, you're looking, you're saying, oh, for a second, so you were not even like you yourself. How can we be like you when you're not even you? You're using somebody else's mentality, somebody else's reality, somebody else's institutions, and you're trying to dictate to us that we should be like you. No, thank you, my friend. I hope I answered at least one of your questions. What was the second question? I'll answer quickly. No, you quickly. answered, you answered. Can I kind can of... I? <laughs> Can I, say, can I say something other? Beautifully spoken, yeah, Dylan, go ahead. Because, yeah, so that's, yeah, what Bernard's saying is very, very, uh, very um, important. Um, and I would say that when uh, myself and Bernard are dealing with, with that, that's that's where it intersects with, men, men, well, first of all, he call, what he calls mentalities, and secondly, why, I, why, I, why would we be talking about the colony in the Middle Ages and stuff? It's uh, weirdly enough, it's not just about history being in the past, it's that it's all occurring right now in the present. And one of the things that we would, ironically, one of the things that I, for example, that I would be uh, pushing and me and Bernard have spoken about before is that we have to reckon in the present moment, some of the, a lot of the confusion is happening and the persecution that, does, that is occurring is, is, is partly because it was, yeah, okay, is because we're not conscious of how it was, how it came to be like that in the first place. So the, so the state is set up by the colony and the state is actually English and everyone knew that centuries ago. Uh, that's not so obvious now. And since then, that English-Irish identity that we talked about that used to, that developed within the pale became the default Irish identity. And especially after 1922, that became the identity that was like, this is normal, as Bernard would say. This is, this is the origin we're looking at of that problem where what's happened is there's a normal Irish identity, which... We actually understand is actually the is actually mostly from the English mentality or the English point of view on the island 
if we were to go back to 1600 and look around at the island, we'd see that that was actually the minority. Like what we would we would point at travelers now and say, oh, that's that's the minority. They're not that's not the normal culture in the country. OK, if we were in 1600, we'd have the other way around. We'd if we went within the pale and went into the in, inside wall towns, even like Galway, that we'd say that they're the minority. This is the minority culture. This is the one that feels under pressure because vast parts of the country would all have been unorganized in the Gaelic manner. And um, so in the modern age, though, after 1922, we're, we're looking at a strange history of a very old colonized country and a long history of colonialism, not the modern. We're used to kind of like flash in the pan version in Africa and places, which is fairly recent in comparison. In Ireland, it's so long going back 800 years that we have a very complex identity issue where Dublin, for example, the state, I'm going to say, not the, not the people, but the state mechanism says it's normal. It's Irish identity. We're the standard issue Irish identity. So we had exa strange examples we see in the news all the time. Do you remember the politician? Uh, we'd, we'd noted it. Um, what's her name? I think Doherty, Regina Doherty, for example, yeah. was on there recently and she would have been questioned about it was in relation to COVID-19 and movement between here and I, there. I'm actually meeting Regina next week for tea, so we'll go easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, this is a perfect example because what, what she says is, at one stage she's asked by a news reporter, can we not just close the borders and blah, blah, this was back last year. And she goes, well, no, no, because um, we're not going to shut the border between here and the north, we can't, it's not practical, whatever, and we're certainly not going to close between the UK either. What about, you know, and even though it seems like you could do that, and she goes, and she said, quite matter-of-factly, she says, no, no, we're not going to do that because there's been a free travel area, as they call it, uh, free travel area between England and Ireland for 800 years, says she on news night or on the news or whatever, which is extraordinary. Now, it caused a kind of a backlash from people of um, certain uh, people of more Republican persuasion and others would have gone mad on one end, you know what I mean? And other people are agreeing with it. But if you, if you analyze that, you can see that the confusion happens because she's speaking... That's true if you're within Dublin, for example, if you're within the Pale in the English-Irish area, if you know what I mean. And if you're within that zone, that is actually a fact. There has been a free travel, a common travel area between Dublin and England for 800 years. That's a fact. But what she's, what she's masked uh, by saying that is that she couldn't, uh, you know, until a few hundred years ago, you couldn't go uh, 10 miles westward from Dublin and it was suddenly not a free travel area and they would have to go through the pale barrier and into a completely different zone where they would need passes from the chiefs or from other people to move through the territories. So uh, she says it though, matter of factly, as if it applies to all of Ireland, there has always been a free travel area between Ireland and England for 800 years, says she. Okay. Now, what it shows you is that the entire history of the Gaelic part of Ireland is missing there in that statement as if it never existed. And the only history that exists is the, and the only one that's important is the one between Dublin, which was an English colony and England. And obviously England and Dublin were connected for 800 years. Yes, they were because, you know, it was an English outpost. So therefore it's the adoption of that identity as being, this is Irish identity, this is normal. And when they did that, you can see then why it is that anyone outside of that identity, which includes in particular travelers, um, but also Irish speaking people and, and lots of other people, rural people, various people, even you could say working class people in various areas and even Dublin, Dubliners in many respects, um, 
but anyone essentially outside of that system it, in Ireland, it becomes not, it, it's, it's actually that idea that they're, um, they are now not normal. And the travelers are at the front edge of that wedge because they always had been because they're, uh, the, uh, the Irish people, um, who were in con whose contact with the state was always one of hostile was always a hostile contact and as bernard would have said um as you pointed out to me bernard to this day traveler affairs are dealt with by the state by um the department of justice it's not by anything else um and and that tells us that's the direct descendant of the fact that it's regarded as a kind of internal security issue rather than uh and one of law rather than um a kind of strange little anomaly or just a cultural thing you know um, and the, the criminalization of, a, of an entire way of life and way of being. Yeah, which we directly inherit from. We, we directly inherit. And it makes complete logical sense when you understand that, like, when, 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 the, when the Dublin administration is trying to take over the rest, is, is part of extending its administration across the country, it's completely natural that from its law's perspective, the, um, the Gaelic ways of life represent uh, a problem. And therefore, it's an internal security or justice, you know what I mean, the, as they extend their courts across the country. But they're perfectly, the system is already an old system in Ireland, the Dublin one. It's just that it had always been in the minority until it was part of the conquest, if you know what I mean. Now, I, what I'm saying about that, though, is that just to, ma to match it to Bernard, I'm saying that it's not, it's important because in the present moment, I think that it's very difficult to talk about these things and to talk about decolonization, unless we understand that we also want to bring to the fore that the English culture in Ireland is a real thing, is old, and is something that can be, has its own uh, ups and downs or good points and bad points. And that that, that particular culture, that, 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 that diversity of culture is actually very important for us to bring it out as that within the Pale and within the Four Shires and within Dublin, that English culture of the cities of places like Dublin is actually very important for us to understand. And if we don't understand it, we can't actually get a grip on why that happened, why, why, why are, why is this conflict between travelers and state happening to this day? Why is, as Bernard said, are they under that much pressure that it's constant that they're actually killing them off? Why would that be happening unless and then unless we understand the English origins of the state in that regard and actually take it that it's built as a mechanism to do that and it's still doing it because we haven't reversed the laws and you know and then we have a full argument for decolonization like what like what you're dealing with. Um, yeah. So it's yeah. like. Um... It, it's 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 not the culture per se of the it's not the english irish culture per se that's the problem it's the supremacy it's the enforced systemic supremacy of that culture over other cultures on the island exactly and the fact it was never revisioned so we didn't turn around with the law and say oh by the way we inherited a system that didn't recognize the uh, legitimate existence of the older cultures on the island so mm -hmm. therefore maybe we should actually change that a little bit to allow that to be have equal rights because we actually inherited a system in Dublin of law and of the civil service and of various other things, court systems, all that kind of stuff, justice, the four court, whatever. Uh, we are inherited an entire system that explicitly dismantled the Bren laws and explicitly had no, there's not even a mention, there's no room for maneuver. There is no such thing as it just doesn't exist as a thing. And of course, when, when that's the case, then anyone outside of that is is going to be ground against the gears of the state and against in the system because that's what it's designed to do. Yeah, and hence, and hence we have full, yeah, and that's why we would come full. We would head straight into the thing where we would say, yeah, people like yourselves, where your interest in decolonization and everything, perfect, makes perfect logical sense to us because we understand that to defuse those conflicts, 
that's required. But we, we also see that it would not be beneficial. It would be beneficial not just to travelers, but actually to in all of Ireland. Even the English culture in Ireland would benefit because we would have a much richer, uh, we wouldn't have so many, so many, yeah, com- diffuse the conflict and we'd have richer access to the history, essentially, is what the way I would look at it. Just to say something on that, right? If, if you were to take right across the board, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, America, anywhere where the English linguistic colonial language is. Now, if you look at all of the minorities, ethnic minorities, indigenous people, and you compare them with Irish travellers, well, every statistic that you can think of is almost aligned with all of these other cultures. So we're talking about decolonization and mentalities, right? If that's happening right across the world, with the Australians, uh, Maori and so on, Sami and so on and so forth, is that you're looking at uh, two different mentalities. You're looking at one that's colonized and one that was not colonized because it only makes perfect sense that the West Virginia company that was belonging to the English, um, actually Spencer said it in one of his letters, oh dear queen with the shitty head, something to that effect. <laughs> not wrong with the queen either, not this old queen. But uh, something to that effect, uh, the language he used was, dear queen of Scotland and England and Wales and the Virginia, uh, which is a Virginia company. So that was their mentality. So that mentality spread to America. So for me, even uh, people say linguistics, um, human behavior, neurological stuff that goes on in the head. For me, it's something about, has anyone ever actually done much work on the linguistics of a colonial language? What's this, uh, the after effects? What does it do? I know other people from minorities have, but in the Western world, I don't, I don't seem to find it. I don't hear Noam Chomsky talking about how the English language replaced another mentality and continued to live within that mentality. He says that can't be possible. He says the language doesn't do things like that. That we're innate within a language, the acquisition of language. But if you grew up in an environment that's not yours, and you've been taught as a child in a school by a language that is not yours, and that's the only history and language you know, that seems to me that's something fundamentally wrong there. So I think, yeah, the whole decolonization isn't just about the language. It isn't anti-English. It isn't anti-Irish. We have no issues with this. We grew up in conflicts. We know how battles go. You win some, you lose some. We're not even playing victim. What the NGOs, travel organizations, the support groups, which again... I've no doubt you'll find the same in Australia and America and other places. They're primarily ran and dictated by middle-class people. And what I find with a lot of the middle-class people, not like the working classes, again, these are all colonial labels anyway, but within that environment, I find with the middle classes, these seem to be the most ingrained into the systems. Uh, Maybe because their lifestyle, maybe their protection, boarding schools, early school, private schools, late schools, but they seem to be a long, long, long time inside them systems. And when they come out and they tell us like, well, we think you need this and we're going to help you. It's a bit like what Alan Watts says about the, the, the monkey and the fish. You know, the monkey takes the fish out of the water because he's going to save the fish from drowning and puts it up in a branch in a tree. That's what like the middle classes do. You'll see it also in um, African-Americans. Who leads them organizations for years? White people. Well, actually, we go to disability groups in Ireland. Who's their bosses? Who leads them? More people with mobility. But they've all got one streak that I just cannot get out of my head, that they all belong to a middle-class regime. And God love them, it's not their fault. 
but they are the most robotic people that you'll ever meet in your life. I mean, nothing comes out of them without explanations of numbers and digits, and we're going to help you. You could be literally dying in front of them, and they're still trying to convince you, we're helping you. Uh, but yeah, that's my rant. <laughs> yeah, um, so I'm going to say something here, and it's probably going to come out uneloquently, but I, I'll give it a shot. So I would add that settled Irish, settled Irish or settled English Irish culture, if you like, um, is also a white supremacist culture, right? And it exists. Now, I interrupt with... you, Jimmy, for one second because I forgot to explain this part. Not that it might matter, right? When we say settled, sure. um, when I say settled, right? This is the way I see it. I don't see one huge settled uh, community. Not everybody's settled. I'm talking about the label. The, the label that the English brought here was settled, not settlers, settled, settlement of Ireland, settlement of Dublin, settlement of travellers in 1963. Now, this is one way of distinguishing to help people because your genetics and your name has nothing to do with anything, really, because you were, if you were a child and taken away and grew up in the mentality and a culture or a religion, that's the way you'll go. That's where you'll see it. That'll be your reality. Mm -hmm. But for me, with the settled population, it's broken into two, just for simple simplicity. One is you've got Irish settled. Now, the Irish settled are people that came with the same surnames as ourselves. But over the process of colonization, we're stripped from Irish clans, Irish society, Irish Gaelic culture into an English one. So you've got an Irish settled. The other one is the settled Irish. These are the pe people that came with the settled institutions and the mechanisms, anglicized, so on support, and adapted an Irish, or actually robbed it, stole it. Sometimes I refer to them as the Cuckoo Clan, the Anglo-Saxons, to go to all these different countries and cultures and rob their identities. Because I don't want to sound that where it's the travelers and it's the settled. It's just people on an island and a lot of shit happened. And now we're in a program, because that's how you can describe the English language. You actually tell, tell them in their universities, do this program, do that program. It literally is a program. And if you want to, for me, I see this English colonial language. For example, you take somebody in the army. they got these uh, institutionalized habits now. They're going to bring their army skills with them. Even when they go home, they've got habits. You can mm. see in doctors, nurses, solicitors. Everybody has to be like a program. So for me, the English language, put it to one side, and you got the settled population, which, again, take that away. you got Irish people mostly. Break that in two. You've got people who came with an English mentality, for a very long time, no matter how long they've been on the island, they kept in systems. And then they got the people who were once Irish, but over famines, diseases, natural causes, and colonization, they had broken them people down in the same way to break people down in the army. And when they break them down with shame and regret and everything else, to rebuild them, like, let us help you. After putting, in the, putting us in this position in the first place, they're trying to convince us now we're trying to help us. So the settled is complex, but I would say, yeah, just in case I, I piss off every settled person in the island. Uh, no, thanks for thanks for clarifying that. So, um, so I guess what I wanted to say was and, and ask you is that like the way I see it is that the settled culture, if you like, um, is also a white supremacist culture, and in, within a global context is supported by white supremacist systems um, that still dominate the globe. Um, so, and that colonial monstrosity 
is driving the whole planet off a cliff, right? So in a sense, then settled culture as a as a colonial capitalist modern white supremacist culture is dependent on that those systems, right? Broadly speaking, so when all of that inevitably cascades down in the next, you know, within this century, um. That the, the the culture will no longer be supported by the systems that allow it to um, to maintain supremacy systemically of its of itself. Do you know what I mean? So, um, and and you're saying as well, <clears throat> like if if people learn the Irish language now, it doesn't mean you're suddenly decolonized, right? Because you still have the the Anglo the Anglicized mindset because that's what you've been um, conditioned and socialized into from birth, so therefore you have you have a sort of a, a a green English in your mind when you're speaking Irish you're actually speaking English, so and and you're talking a lot about survival there and um, traveler survival tactics and Kant being a language of survival through through the ages. To, to be able to maintain traveler culture or Gaelic culture to this point. So um, I guess in some way I'm asking you maybe to, to talk a bit about survival because survival will actually be a thing that everyone on the island is really going to have to reckon with in a big way within this century. Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, it, 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 it's a, it is a huge thing. Even trying to get your head around decolonization itself because one i don't want to give the impression that that i have some magic uh spell that i can just decolonize everyone or, or that i'm trying to sell something to someone's convinced <laughs> reese is on to me already he knows i do <laughs> but um it, it's, a, it's a process right uh, we're again i keep saying this part we're human beings we weren't born with these labels we were, we were born into cultures, we weren't born with cultures, identity, so on and so forth. I'm not too bothered about the culture changing. I mean, we, we, we came that direction pretty much. I mean, we, we went through the various stages of it. So the culture isn't so much an issue for me. It's a, the identity and it's about the mentality because all these systems where we see at the moment, these institutions that keep people locked up like the Truman Show, um, Westworld, that kind of vibe, is that if you start to learn about your own identity, first of all, this year, I'm based on a guy called Alan Watts quite a bit, of it, is that if we only know who we are by the people around us. When we were children, we were given a name. When we grew up, we were told who we were, what we could do, what we couldn't do. Now, if you moved all that away, you wouldn't know who you are. So we rely on the world around us to tell us who we are. Apart from that, everybody's on the same boat. So the people using these colonial systems were born into them, but they think they're natural systems somehow or another, that they weren't, no, they've always, they're part of the system. They're par, part of the role, the occupation, uh, the job. Uh, and you see this time to time, I'm a guard, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse. They're not, they're just labels. They're labels that given to them by the systems to get money and so on and so forth. But if we take a step outside of that, I think we're looking at... Um, a place where the decolonization doesn't have to be such a big deal. It doesn't have to be a process as such. It's kind of like saying, uh, this old saying, what's it? treat people how you'd like to be treated yourself. That's one way of looking at it. That's a bit soft, I think, at that stage. 
But I think it's part where people like yourselves, what you're doing, um, except for Dylan has already developed a great relationship on this. We come from the West of Ireland, we come from Sligo. All of these are historically linked because it was one of the last places to go down under the colonial world and so on. So forth, we escaped, we managed to survive, um, all of that kind of stuff. So we're not swinging around uh, trying to tell the settled people, we're going to sell you a bunch of shit now. Um, <laughs> we're going to sell you mugs and plates and everything. And I mean, be decolonized. I was going to say, uh, the program didn't work in Sligo because they forgot the second bit. They forgot to give us any jobs or benefit from... They forgot to give us any jobs in the in the last four hundred years. So uh... yeah, that's sure, that's for sure. <laughs> but I, I think um, Sorry, for me, it's, it's about it's about if you are, if you were Irish, if you were a Gael, if you have any connection to that world, and you appreciate that world, and you respect that world, and you like the stories, and you like the art, and you like it all goes with it, do not fall into the same trap as the Gaelic revivalists, because I I was to say I remember. Um, in the 17th, 18th century, when these fuckers, uh, middle class people, again, not after it's middle, middle class people watching this, no offense. Is it something I'll, I'll find the right wording eventually to narrow it down, but that's all I can see for now. These middle class fuckers out of colleges and so on and so forth were doing the same shit about, oh, the Celtic Bible will be beautiful. We'll do this and we do that. And outside the window was our ancestors starving to death being hunted down, gunned down, put down, and he couldn't see them. Like, let's do Celtic revival. So it's a bit like, I mentioned survival. We're not a Celtic revival story. We don't need to be revived. We don't even need to be helped. All we're looking is for a bit of support because we are the Celtic survivalists. That's what we care for, that's our history. My parents grew up having it tough. Their parents had it tough. Their parents had it tough. This goes for a lot of Irish people in general in the West of Ireland, but it has never stopped for Irish travelers. Right to this point of time, we've been stripped of our identity, stripped of human rights, civil liberties. We had been put into concentration camps called halting sites, hidden behind and away from everyone. We've been institutionalized in front of people. We had been ordered. We had been we had Irish people attack our people because they thought we were something different. They thought we were going to bring diseases to their locations. Well, in actual fact, we were the most healthiest people on the island during plagues, famines, and everything else that came between us because we didn't have that um, in-town village cut-off um, immune system. So, yeah, I think there's a, a, I think the arts, I genuinely do believe there's a meeting ground in the world of arts because all the talk of the world isn't going to change this. And I'm no scholar. I left school when I was 13. So I don't have the academia and I don't have the educational background to back up all this kind of stuff for times, dates, places. And I'm glad in some way I don't have it. But I know people who do have it. So I think I can work with them and they can work with me. They got the educational skills, we got the mentality. And there's a way of fusing that together where we do movies together, we do arts together, whatever we do, we do it together. Irish native speakers. There is no one ever going to come up to us again and try to convince us they're, they're, they're going to help us. When we know now more than we've ever known in our history, is that the people that need the help are the people that are telling us that they're going to help us. It's like being in that uh, asylum. It's like the, the fruitcakes are going to help us. No, my dear fruitcakes, you need to sit down, we need to talk about something. So that'll be the decolonization for me, my friend. Sorry thanks for so the much. No, <laughs> thanks so much for all that. We're, 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 we're here for it. No, it's really well said. Reese, did you do you have anything you want to add or ask? <clears throat> yeah. 
I mean, thank you for all of that. Um, I, I agree completely. It's, it's going to take, you know, collaboration um, and fusion of, of all of the different perspectives that we're coming from. Um, I don't think I have this very formed very well, but something I'm looking at is even just seeing around is, is um, you know, within the settler colonial project of the United States and Canada and other settler colonial projects, that system itself, you know, it is founded on white supremacy, but it's also founded on the silencing of women and violence against women. And, you know, that has played out in, in these islands as well. And I'm, you know, if, if it is just, you know, three and a half wise men talking about things, you know, I, I, I'm trying to figure out, like, it's like, you know, if we are going to survive violence against women and silencing them, it's going to have to be worked through and healed from, you know, there's a, there's a long uh, legacy of trauma there. And I don't, I don't know exactly what I'm asking. It's, I'm, well, can I'm, I just jump in there yeah. based on what you're saying? Because I, I, unfortunately, you'll find many similarities with suppressed, aggressed, oppressed communities. You know, the alcohol abuse, the domestic violence abuse. These things do manifest. Now, if we were to take a slight step outside of that and go back into our Gaelic culture, you're talking about women were held in the highest regard. They were warriors, they were leaders, they were princes and so on and so forth. So we do have a history of treating women extraordinarily well compared to even most modern times, uh, let alone going back the last hundred years. So I think for how, yeah, again, it, 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 it's, uh, the main one talks about the, the women. But I think there has to be something there we too, as a people, we need to get over our hurt and our trauma. We need to stop lashing out. We we're not sure what's hurting us because no, not that many travelers yet are into this level of understanding all the, the things that did happen, uh, the colonization and the institutions and the acts and the laws and the continuation of being berated by the media and politicians, talking about throwing children off motorways, talking about shooting travelers, have shot travelers, to burn homes still that are designated for travelers. Because in their colonial mindset, these travelers are walking, talking criminals of disease. That's the propaganda that's been put into their head for so long. And of course, when you're being suppressed by a system, it's like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Because if a traveler does something in Cork or Dublin or Wexford, we're all going to feel the effects of that one way or the other. Because it'll go up in the papers that. You don't see white settled people this or the settled people of Cork or the settled people of Dublin. But traveler, traveler, traveler. They even go as far as to call them traveler gangs and so on and so forth. It's this kind of, it sells. Who are the travellers? Now, from the days of Rome and the Greeks, they didn't know who the Gales were, or Geltai, or whatever name they want to call them. Right to this day, we can say the exact same thing. Now, I know little segments and fragments of that history that I can say, we still do that. We still got that mentality. That's traditions we still do. Uh, but right to this day, nobody knows who we are. That's the big worrying thing for me um, about moving on, moving forward. I'm not sure how I'm answering your question. But when it comes to, say, traveller women, yeah, absolutely. They are still our warriors. The hardest, fightest workers that you'll ever get on the planet come from our community when it comes to terms like that. Um, seven days a week working in what we call the NGO support groups that are unfortunately rigged against us more than they are for us. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure if that's... 
Just did it for um, the second I guess, race. Jimmy. I guess we're coming, it's coming around now. It's like, do, if, if art and shared, you know, oral or audiovisual tradition is a kind of way towards survival and, you know, can, can that be used to heal the wounds between genders in, in Ireland, you know, and in, into the future, like, I have no it's doubt. Like, what do we do? <laughs> but I, I, you know, I don't know if we need. Oh, come here! It's a bit like there's studies. Well, say like just say just say on the decolonization <laughs> part, right? Well, see, the biggest element of decolonization is also about healing. Yeah, it's about mm -hmm. historical healing. It's about current trauma healing, and that healing is about forgiving yourself. It's also about mm -hmm. living what you can live with, and understand that we grew up in a hostile environment. Everything wasn't it wasn't designed to be fair to start with. It was actually designed to destroy you for centuries. So I think, uh, and again, it goes back to the arts and the films, how we can make a connection. How can we make amends, repairs? How can we move forward? One is, is positioning ourselves in the present, having these conversations, having these talks, and hopefully we can take that and rather than move forward, but develop it, turn it into an art form. Because I believe, because Ireland is old, and we were the first overseas country to be colonized by the English uh, before they went to the Americans and the West Indies and so on and so forth. I think if we can get it together, I think if we come together, what you're doing, I really respect it, is if we can come together and create something. I still believe it's the arts. I don't know why. I think it's a lot of magic in the arts. Is that we can change the perception. We can push back the, the so-called reality of travelers and settled people and reveal it as people that were caught off guard by colonization for centuries. I also believe that can go a long, long way in healing other ethnic minorities and indigenous people. White supremacy and all that kind of stuff. White supremacy for me comes from the Germanic tribes. Uh, I don't know why, but I'm pinning them with them. That's their shit. Uh, we didn't have racism in the Gaelic mentality. We didn't have black, brown, and superior or superior. We had it in war and battles, but we were an honor-based society which made us even different again from the rest of Europe. Um, so I think there's a lot in there, yeah. Thank you. I hope I've answered some Riz, of that question. Riz, I, would, <laughs> I would say that you're, you're, you're onto something as well there, though, because there, it, there, there's the other side of it. I've seen, just as a quick note to say that I've seen studies, I think, and I can't remember the details of it, but I've actually seen studies to do with the psychology of the one, even the ones who, who supposedly benefit from colonization. Uh, the effect it has on their societies, the constant sort of suppression of the knowledge of the either contact with traumatic events, even if they're the perpetrator uh, of uh, things like massacres or taken of land and things like this. Uh, you can see it in Irish colonies, for example, in Ulster and that where a lot of like a certain type of society is born out of that one that's in very much in denial of certain things, one that's, uh, you know, it's playing out today, I would say, in, in, our, in, our, in Ireland as we speak, if you know what I mean, we're settler society within Ireland, for example. And I think I, I think the reports I looked at were actually to do with the, the United States, where it was, but it was to do with what effect does that have on the psychology of a culture? So, for example, in the state, in the United States, you would say the white culture. In Ireland, it's not based on color division, if you know what I mean. It's just, you, you can't tell the difference, but it's still, but between the settler culture in Ireland or the settler culture in America, um, the effect, there's interest from psycho, of a psychological nature in the effect of, uh, 
of those kind of events and of the playing out of that history of being even being the oppressor of being paranoid all the time though of always having guns of, of defending yourself of the fact that somewhere in the background there's something you can never talk about that the land was taken that you know your ancestors took this land but it wasn't done in a very friendly manner and you know what i mean so um there's all of that there and, I, and there has definitely been some kind of studies on that kind of thing and there was also there would be studies as well i think in terms of you could probably go further into it to do exactly what you're talking about where what effect does that have on society on violence in a society and on even violence between men and women and other parts of the culture and um it's undoubtedly we'll find that it's all linked in some way you know it's yeah. that, that 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 complex that that complex building of a system built on imperial built on imperialism and uh money and on and on a constant expansion at the expense of others is going to like what you're saying now we we all facing it now because now it's reached the planet a planetary level and now it's a real problem <laughs> because it's destroying the ecosystem and now we really have to address this we have to change it and to do that we very very much need different mentalities to come to the fore so that we can understand what it is that happened this last few centuries so yeah but i'm I, just to, as a note to what you're saying i think that and i've said it with bernard actually we, we've talked to some people about it occasionally sometimes people get confused and think the focus entirely is on the oppressed people which it is in certain respects but also a lot of the for example education and stuff that we would be talking about in ireland really we're pointing it more at the uh, and people get surprised sometimes, but really we're pointing out at, you know, my community, the the settled community, the one that seems like it's okay, but they're the ones that are probably the, in some ways the least okay, if you know what I mean. The ones most in denial, the ones who think, well, I'm normal. What what's the problem, you know? Um, uh, and it's that society, and it's the state, and it's the law, uh, the state that thinks it's grand, that thinks it's okay. It doesn't have to address the history. That's just history, you know. And then can't understand why it's having that effect on minority communities, why it can't revive Irish, why it can't stop persecuting travelers, why it can't, you know, but there's no, there's no, without that analysis of its role and that culture's role in the whole thing, we, it is difficult. We can't get anywhere. So yeah, I would, I would agree with you there. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just hearing that it's like, what kind of impact does witnessing women being taken away to the mother and baby homes and the industrial schools and the, you know, psychiatric institutions. I mean, men were also put into, you know, industrial schools and the, the, the psychiatric system, but, you know, on, on such a large scale, it's like hurt people, hurt people. And then there's also that, that impact that one or a group has like as witnesses to that. And, you know, the, yeah, there, there has to be healing and there can't be reconciliation if no truth is being told, if there's a complete, collective denial of something and there's just so many parallels to what i'm seeing happening in settler colonial contexts in canada and the us um you know canada has acknowledged the residential schools but they just set up commission after commission that just sort of the the people like get traumatized in public and then these records just stay collecting dust and in the states there's been no acknowledgement of the residential school system, you know, the, or the, uh, I think they're called um, boarding schools in, in the States, but residential schools in Canada. And it's, yeah, like, like, but then in Canada, it's like, okay, well, we need rec rec reconciliation. We need reconciliation, but you can't have that if the harm is still happening. Um, Just on that race, uh, you're talking about, uh, yeah, not owning up to the past of the institutions, the schools and so on and so forth. Again, and I'm, I'm, people sometimes you're, 
I'm making it about the travellers. I'm not making it about the travellers. I'm making it about the president as a survivor and also uh, of colonialism. Is that Irish travellers uh, went through that very same process in Ireland. They had uh, traveller-only institutions. And one institution, I think there was 46 traveller children with intimate. And within a few years, only two were alive. There was other homes where, you know, they call it the House of Horrors. So that were all the abuses that went on. Um, a lot of these things happened with travellers over the country. Uh, the last little thing, travellers were being taken. Children were being taken from mothers and fathers because they lived in a wagon, because they pissed off some settlery guard or they didn't, judge didn't like them. Them children were snatched, ended up dead. And if they didn't end up dead, they ended up, pretty much the majority of them ended up being broken up psychologically on the other side of it, that they couldn't connect with the settled community and they could no longer connect with their own community. A lot of them had fallen prey to drugs and so on support. Up to that point, I think, in the 1960s, now the, them homes would not be years, but the 1970s, 1980s, they were still in operation for, for travellers. There's still services in Ireland just for travellers. That everyone, you know, we're here talking about colonisation and the spread of it and the damage of it. And I'm here also saying that that shit is still happening to our people right as we speak. It has never stopped. There's no such thing as post-colonialism. How could it be post-colonialism when they never turned off the systems in 1922? So all that sugar, I accept swearing, but all that shit anyway is going on. But at the same time, I don't have no animosity. I have no rage. I have no anger. I have no bitterness for settled people. I don't have it for the state. I don't even have it for the English. Um, for some bizarre reason or another, I know this thing's happened. But I know for a very long time also that I was in a pretty bad place uh, because I knew what I knew, but I had no words to put with it because I left school when I was young and we came from a different culture anyway. So I knew what I knew and I knew was unknown. And the more I was unknown, the more frustrating it was getting because you, you're like, it's hard to explain it. It's like growing up inside a dome where you have these people and they're acting normal. It was like the Stepford Wives, it was like the, the village of the dam. Um, and although you weren't articulate enough to explain to them that there was something wrong with them, they were trying to convince you there was something wrong with you. So I went through many years like that. Um, and it was only, uh, I think, was um, who was that? It was a, the DNA project on Irish travellers. Because up to that point, they wouldn't even give travellers recognition. We were from the island. They're trying to convince us we came from India. They told us we were gypsies in Roma. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> White complexion and same surnames. Come on. That was okay. They even denied us that much. And it was a lot of the travelers, one of these um, genetic documentaries. And they're like, oh, well, travelers had diverged from the settled people 360 years ago till we found out there was actually no settled people 360 years ago. There were settlers, but it wasn't settled because that was the colonization. So we know we didn't break away from anyone. We know we came straight out of the, the, the Gaelic world. So they go say, well, travelers have got genetic markers that are going back a thousand years. And we're saying, well, obviously we would because we were Irish clans. We didn't just marry into anyone and everyone we met. You had to be at the same standard of whatever, uh, power, numbers, uh, to keep your tours in your homes, in your castles. Made perfect sense. So, yeah, right up to this point, they have still constantly deny us of who we are. Because, for well, one, the vast majority of them, I mean, I've met people who are highly educated people. People in Trinity College, in Manuk College, and all these uh, institutions that are proclaimed to be the best in the world. 
and they haven't got a foggiest idea who travellers are. How can you be on a small island with institutions that large and powerful and still not know your own history, not know what's outside Dublin? It's just bonkers. I think we're still living in the, the Truman Show. I'll just touch on, because you were touching on trauma there. Yeah, you're touching on everything, but <clears throat> touching on notions of trauma there. And uh, in um, Tomás Max Simón, in his books, um, the, the Gale Becomes Irish and the Broken Harp, uh, he, he identifies the cultural condition of post-traumatic stress disorder in Ireland following centuries of colonial violence and... Um, you know, that pervades so many layers of society and people's behaviours and attitudes towards Gaelic culture, the language and, and to travellers as well. Um, and it, I feel it's almost like a kind of traumatised self-hatred, many of the attitudes towards travellers from settled people. It's like deep in the cultural subconscious, uh, maybe there's like this recognition of what travellers have managed to hold on to and that settled people gave up or forgot or traded away for the promise of something shiny. Uh, and and you, you talk about trauma a bit on your YouTube channel as well. And, um, and it just feels so pervasive. Like it's just this massive thing, the elephant in the room almost in our society, but it's not acknowledged. It's not talked about at all. It's not, it's, it's not like, we can't reckon with something if it's not even a, like if we don't can't even admit that it's there, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you could talk broadly, even in some of the ways you see trauma surfacing in Irish society and in you know settled people or or people that think they're just normal and okay. Yeah, I say first of all, my friend, there's nobody on the island who's not traumatized. Uh, whether it be the oppressor or the oppressed, whatever you call these labels, settling traveller, we're all one way or the other. I think it was, um, yeah, a while back I was looking up, um, I don't know what I was looking up, but I came across it anyway. 18.5% of Irish people are depressed, higher than the rest of Europe. Of course, in the pale, they tell you it's the weather. And I, I, you know, it could be too. But given that I was into the mentalities and the trauma and all this kind of stuff, I was thinking of 18.5% depression rate. So I started looking into it. And it's actually much higher in the west of Ireland. Then I was looking at the issues. What are the 18 point, what's these key factors? Schizophrenia, bipolar, anxiety. I said, okay, let's look, take one of them. Um, uh, schizophrenia, something to do with the mind, hallucinations, psychological. They're all psychological. Then I started looking at uh, which country in the world has the highest rate of schizophrenia. Now, some will come up like Indonesia, um, Philippines, Places that were actually traumatized. So, but it goes back to the West of Ireland. So the West of Ireland has a higher ratio, I think, of uh, schizophrenia or higher rates than almost the rest of the world. So they were thinking, okay, for a second, let's go back in there again. Now you're talking about the famine, mass trauma, literally trauma everywhere. Dublin had set up their asylums. They didn't give a shit who was traumatized, who was a traveler, who was a criminal. Anyone that said a word, word was going into the asylums. They didn't give a shit. So there was a spike, huge rate of mental health issues from the famine. I would, on a non-professional uh, way, almost link schizophrenia and bipolar to traumatization, to colonization. 
I think there's a there's a link there. There's some connection there. I sense it. Um, we're all trauma. I mean, I grew up in trauma. Um, everybody has trauma one way or the other. This um, gut-wrenching feeling of hate and despise, and trust me, we've seen it a million times, that settled people have for travellers. And we haven't got a notion of it for the settled people. Not because we're afraid of them or we give a shit about them. It's just we don't bother. We're just thinking most of these people are something wrong with them. They're not quite right in the head. We're as well to keep going. <laughs> There's something like that. And of course, when I say that, I'm joking because there's a lot of settled people where we're connected to, we're married into. The people, the Irish settled with the same surnames, had to come from our world. We know we didn't come from theirs because settled is a colonial project. So they must have come from ours. But during the famine and the centuries and the process and the breaking down, a lot of these people got sucked into them. So the trauma has never stopped. It has never stopped for travellers. But it has never stopped for settled people, Irish settled people, who are living in denial that we are something else, that we are a, a broken product of themselves, that we are failed, settled people, that somehow or another we just weren't good enough and became outcasts, without realising that we're still the smallest minority in Ireland, uh, probably the world by far, I know. But yet, if you look at our sports, our athletes, our physica physicality, you will see that we got world champions left, right and centre. We had at least 32 Irish travellers who were world champion boxers. We had other sports athletes. Does that look like we're a broken down version of anyone? No, it does not. But unfortunately, because it suits Dublin to maintain this new Irish identity, and they tell the rest of the world, we're Irish, 100%. We don't know who them guys are, but the time we're finished, we nobody know who they are, because we already have them categorized as Roma. We've already turned all the Irish people against them. We already institutionalized them and threw their children out onto the streets and turned them into monsters so nobody likes them. That's trauma over and over and over again. So I think to deal with that, as you said, the elephant in the room, is to sit down, have a conversation, say, look, we're here now. What can we do about here and now? What do we know about the here and now? We already got people who are skilled, well-versed in the history and the cultures and mentalities. We've got indigenous people. We've got Native Americans. We've got Native Australians. We've got people left, right, and center that knows exactly what to do and how to do it. But the problem is that nobody really truly knows how to start in, unless we go to Ireland, where I believe global trauma through the English Channel was developed and started here. I think we come back here to Ireland, make a few blockbuster movies with the Irish Gales, I'm telling you, we could change the world, my friends. If you want to say that, like the, that um, from a historic, yeah, that Ireland exhibits numerous, probably endless lists, like you say about Max Simon, who I think is an important author on this. And we've uh, been dealing with him before. Actually, he, he started his career in Sligo, actually, many years ago. Um, uh, the, the um, yeah, there's numerous, the, all of that, the anger against uh, travellers, like you say, the, uh, uh, in fact, a lot of the anger against the language, uh, any kind of reminders of where people had come from, that's all uh, absolutely fact. And in fact, you could probably put a lot of other stuff in there as well, including things like, um, I know it's a global issue about housing and things like that, but actually even the, the way that it's playing out with landlordism and stuff in the country is all, there's a lot of things to do with land and ownership and the inability to uh deal to kind of balance that out uh for ourselves in the country our, our inability to deal with it like so that we get the full brunt of anything that's going on that's a problem in the world at the moment 
and we're not able to smooth it out because we're of is all denial uh, you know those things that come out of trauma anger and denial and various other things like that yeah we're 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 up to our necks in it in this country uh in terms of we you know when it comes to access to the history it's blocking a lot of our access to the history people are, have made some films now about like going back as far as the famine like what you're talking about bernard but actually it's not so simple to even do the arts because the trauma means that even if you try to make a film set any time at the famine or before it rapidly becomes a very emotive issue <laughs> if you know what i mean so yeah there's a bit of so there's quite a lot of work to be done a lot yeah but it can be done um maybe to tie in uh reese's question with that reese do you want to ask that out loud yeah sure i, I was just thinking about you know um like we we know that there's trauma and you know if like colonization is an ongoing process it's not just an event um but what, what kind of continuity do we have with the past where what ceremonies exist or practices exist that we can connect with to have collective healing for collective trauma um yeah uh, I, yeah, look, I, I, I'll just say what I, I'm thinking and feeling on that. Uh, it's a case that it might not be right or wrong. But if it's a case that we're looking into the past for something or another to find us to heal now, to connect, when I would say the people who are being slaughtered came from that direction are right here before you. Um, so if we go looking around that or above that or beneath that or behind that, well, then we're, we're never going to deal with the trauma. The greatest force of trauma is to deal with the people that are being uh, destroyed, and I don't mean that in a way that you're, it's your responsibility or anybody else's responsibility. I mean it's all our responsibility because there is no blame, as I said, and there is no shame. These things happened, right? Point is going over and back talking about uh, settled people did this and settled people did that, and we're victims. We're not. Shit happened. We're here. I think if we're going to make this connection, it does start in the present. It starts with these kind of conversations, and it does, of course, use history. But the thing about history is that when we're using history, we don't want no right-wingers, we don't want no haters, we don't want no racists using our Gaelic history for that, because it wasn't there before, so why should it be now? So when we're dealing with these issues, we have to find a way where we can step outside the mentality, outside our emotions, our feelings, our ideas of the world. And we can place them to one side and see it as, as you said, one event. I don't see... Um, I see colonization, imperialism, and capitalism as one event, not three separate events, but one event. I see the process that we need the colonization, but the neurological shifting of the mentalities, which when you think about it, propaganda, advertisements, colonial companies. Colonial companies started off as privateers in Rome. Who runs the country now? Who runs the world now? It's colonial companies. So again, these are about mentalities, about processes, but uh, find a way to reflect on our history, I suppose, in the present and find a way to heal in the now. Um, we'll start with the arts one way or the other, my friend. Yeah, thank you. I think there's no one, I think I was just going to say to you, I don't think there's anyone, I think it's a good question. I think there's no one right way, obviously, and I think a lot of people will come up with a lot of things. But I think from my point of view, in terms of the, his, the reason we did, de obviously dealing with history again is that Again, it's to try to, I think, understanding those things and doing work on the understanding even that it needs to be done, that that decolonization, everything has to be done. I think really 
what you're trying to do is create a little bit of space. It's like you're disconnecting, like that, like for example, the, the pressure between the state and travelers, for example, or the constant pressure that grinds away at like the Irish language and you know, various things like that. Um, and it's partly due to a trauma, you know, it's uh, like we talked about. And I think that actually it's like Bernard said, literally just what 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 you're dealing with there were acknowledgement, firstly, if you know what I mean, of what happened and the diversity of things that went on is really just step one. Once you once you pull them apart uh, and that pressure is not constantly, like the state is not constantly right in on top of travelers or on top of the language or people aren't attacking it continually every day on the radio or saying, I, I, I'm, you know, that language is dead and gone. You're not going to get anywhere with Irish language. There's no point in studying that. But once you, once you uh, push that back, that, that constant anger or, or, and, and uh, denial of uh, the past in that regard, then I think a lot of those ceremonies and things you're talking about will emerge naturally. Yeah. As, uh, and I, I think it's just allowing space for it because, you know, it's like we're, we've, we're, we're been locked in combat for so long. We don't know how to kind of step back a bit and, you know, and see what emerges. Cause I think people will come up with, I would hope that we would expect a bit like you said about the Gaelic revival. I think that some of what they believed at the time was true, but if they could give that space, then these things would emerge naturally because there would be room for them to emerge and it wouldn't be, immediately yeah. attacked or criticized and it could be supported and that's important yeah and i think there are many many different versions of that will emerge in the next while if everything goes you know if this process continues yeah and you know your kind of work can continue and all that yeah uh, for for my own part on that i would you know add this re re-centralizing the land in our lives is the, the most integral thing with this because Gaelic ways of life were land-based. It was a land-based culture. And the the colonial way of being with land is is what really creates the split. Because if we can't be with land in a Gaelic way, which includes, you know, semi-nomadism, then we can't uh, we can't decolonize, right? We can't address the trauma. That's that's like at the center of the the issue for me, um, because uh, in their famous now now famous article, at least in in academic circles around this stuff, uh, Tuck and Yang uh, wrote an article called "Decolonization is not a metaphor," and they say it's not a metaphor for other social justice issues, but that it always re- relates back to land and the repatriation of land, and the repatriation of land doesn't just mean giving ba- land back to be owned by someone else but giving back land back to a culture so that it can be related to in the traditional way. It can be moved across in the traditional way. It can be, uh, you know, people can move their animals across in the traditional way or whatever and be able to do ceremonies with land in a traditional way. Because you go out and you light a fire on state land and you'll have a park ranger coming around telling you to get the fuck off it. <laughs> and giving you fines. Yeah. So... I would agree. I would agree. That's all. That's extra. That's all very, that's it's core. Yeah. That's core issues. And to be honest, I would go on, I would just add one, I would say one, one thing very quickly, which is that to this day, a lot of that, um, the material, the, yeah. So, but the boils down to law and a lack of recognition of the fact that there was a Gaelic culture and that the Gaelic law had any standing in the country. That's step one. And far as I'm concerned in history, 
And um, the, uh, and, this, and, the, and the second part of that was that that's upholding a system of land ownership and everything. And it's not, not even being revolutionary about this. It's just that understanding that, that, that there has to be some space, that it's okay to move, as you say, that it's okay to, even in the sense of uh, travelers, it's okay to move from place to place, that these are older traditions than what the state is even. And then again, belonging to all people on the island, and the point I was going to say is that they have so the suppression of the knowledge of the territories of the province, provincial line, the provinces and the old territories and the connections between all of the people on the land. And, and actually, the Irish poets used to chant off everybody, including uh, English and Norman and clans who settled or families, knightly families, whatever you want to call them. If they settled on the land, they were chanted back into the poetry by the by the Irish poets who were professional historians and all the rest. Um, but the, actually the knowledge of that is still suppressed. The state is, because of the lack of recognition, the state, so to say it very quickly, when I studied archeology, span we studied archeology span in relation to counties because counties, for example, are still the legal units used in this country. And county, we would say, for example, look at the distribution of castles in County Sligo as an example. And it wasn't until later I would realize that that's completely daft because County Sligo didn't exist when those castles were built. Okay, so why would we study a distribution map of castles in Sligo when Sligo wasn't there? Of course, there was four other territories instead at that time, the old Gaelic territories. And it's actually knowledge of that is still, the state still functions because of the laws are still there. That, the, that, that law still means that counties are still the official boundaries. And so it constantly replicates the disconnection of the people because Sligo isn't connected to anything older than 1600. Uh, so therefore you can, you can be uh, proud of Sligo or you can be whatever, and this goes for most of the counties. You can be happy with um, Sligo or Leitrim or Mayo or wherever you're into or uh, Waterford. But the problem is that its history only goes back a few, so many centuries and then, and then it's blank because now it's not connected to anything and it doesn't tell you anything about what happened for a thousand years before that. And that, still, that is still functioning to disconnect us directly from all of the history and the mythology that's connected, very much connected to the land and to all of the ceremonial sites, uh, whether it be Meath, Tara, uh, you know, and it's blocking revival of them and blocking the use of them in ceremonies, apart from the few that are very interested in that kind of thing. But yeah, I would agree. But you, 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 you re, you re, if you, even if it's a cultural aspect, the state has to give equal status to those old territories. Not, not, it, they don't even have to be legal. You can still use counties as a legal unit, but it has to give status as them being important um, in some way, because otherwise they're, you see, they're the territories connected to all of the mythology. They're the one that give us access to that ancient history. Um, because, uh, you know, the territories, for example, in County Sligo are all, you, when you look at the names of them, they're all connected to, the names of the Connacht or the ancient clans, or they're connected to literally into the directly into the mythology to do it now in the line hostages and all that kind of stuff. So it's a gateway, uh, as you have described, the land is a gateway into all of that knowledge for everyone. And it's currently blocked by a very simple colonial trick, change the names of everything. You change the names of everything on the land and bang, you're disconnected and you, and that's it. So yeah, yeah, that's an interesting subject. Oh, that's really interesting because try I suppose the 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 imagined tribal boundaries now are kind of divided around counties in the in the 
the representation of the GAA. Yes. Yeah. But they're not the real, they're not, they're not most in most of the country. They're, they're quite new. They're only since 17th century. Um, yeah. Yeah. Some, some are older, some of them in the, in the pale zone, you know, you might get, you know, so we could, but, um, no, the counties, uh, so the counties have a 400 year in most cases, say like Sligo has a 400 year history. Yeah. So like we yeah. have 400 years where that's, that's legitimate. That's the history. But back beyond 400 years, we've got 1,600 years then of written history where County Sligo is meaningless. <laughs> mm. It wasn't in anyone's head and it wasn't in the mentality and certainly wasn't nobody who built a castle. It's, the castles are built on the edge of the Irish territories, not on anything to do with County Sligo as such. So, yeah. And it, and it took it would have taken us a long time, or it took me in particular a long time to understand, like, why am I learning? Why are we looking at this map of Sligo? Uh, and we're we're mapping the Gaelic world against this map that didn't happen, that didn't happen until later, or is only a recent thing. But yeah. the problem is the state has never revised any recognition. So we study in archaeology, fine, we all we we might know it, but there's still no real recognition of that as being, um, you know, something that um, that has a status of any description. It's yeah, it's there. It's in the records. In fact, most of the Gaelic territories are actually known because they're frozen into barony boundaries. But again, it's not, it's vaguely studied, but in a kind of a sort of similar to the way you would, like Bernard says, this thing's, these are immediate. It's now, that's what's important. They're studied as if like, it's some sort of like, as if you're studying Latin and it's long gone and it's just like maybe a couple of people in some corner of a university might be interested, but sure. What's the point? <laughs> you know? Yeah. All right, let's just uh, conscious of the time here. I feel like we could go, keep going another two, four, six hours talking about these things more boxes keep getting opened and yeah. it's, all, it's all very interesting and, and feels all very pertinent like but uh maybe we'll just wrap up if anyone wants to say any last things before we wrap up or better say something now um <laughs> very, yeah very interesting thanks very much <laughs> likewise very interesting and thank you very much i enjoyed it um I wasn't quite sure how it start or definitely didn't know how it ends. But yeah, I enjoyed it. I hopefully we'll talk again. Yeah, absolutely. Been really fruitful conversation. I think uh, it'll be a gift uh, to anyone that's listening, to be honest. So and, yeah, and many uh, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, sure. thank, thanks for coming on last minute, Reese, as well. So <laughs> yeah. Good to hear from you. I think that America is going to be, I think it's important to connect. I think it's important that international uh, thing as well, that, that connection, our understanding that it's all the one story is very important. Yeah. That, that could be a, another conversation. For yeah, sure. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, lads. Thank right, you very lads. much. Thank you too. Talk again sometime. Take care. All right. Talk, Talk to you soon, lads. Take it easy. Nice to meet you. You too. Nice to meet you.